Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 174 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. And I'm Gregoire. And in this episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, we will be talking to Heidi Allen all about the amazing world of stromatolites. Stromatolites. Micro. We'll ask what it's hard to pronounce. (laughs) We'll be talking to Heidi Allen about what she does. (laughs) And because I obviously need a refresher, let's get straight to the interview. (laughs) I really got to write these things down. Long before human beings were the apex predator, long before the kingdom of animals had even risen on planet Earth, there were still the great structures built off the corners, corners? Off the edges of our continents. Amazing structures to the glory of the creatures that owned the planet at that time. I speak, of course, of microbialites. Fraggles. Fraggles. It could be Fraggles, Dan, but I'm speaking, and maybe that's the term for microbialites, but we're going to talk about microbialites this time. And to do that, seeing Dan has already just gone in with Fraggles, we should get an expert, and that expert will be Heidi Allen, paleontologist at the Geological Survey of Western Australia. Hello, Heidi. Hi. Hi, Greg. Hi, Dan. Is it a Fraggle? Just just get it out of the way. Did Fraggles build these great towers off our coasts? I like that name. You know, we could probably coin that in the scientific literature. Um, (laughs) That's copyright Jim Henson. (laughs) We could get into trouble. Uh, They have been called all kinds of things before. So, but microbialites, yes, they are. They reigned supreme before dinosaurs and man walked on Earth. That's the fossil of choice for a paleontologist in Western Australia. Well, how long are we talking? When was their heyday, their ascendancy period? The oldest known microbialites on Earth are about 3.5 billion years old. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> There's some that are, are slightly older, up to 3.7 billion, but they're quite controversial. So the most widely accepted microbialites are dated at about 3.5 billion years. When you say they're controversial, I assume you mean that their existence is controversial, not that they just got cancelled and no one talks about the ones because they're, they're the old microbialites. Oh, no. A little bit racist. Maybe maybe a little from column A, a little from column B. Right, okay. No, I think um, their existence is not controversial. I think most people agree that the conditions uh, required for microbialites probably extend back a little bit further than 35 but the structures themselves are controversial. So some scientists have published that those 3.7 billion year old structures are stromatolites, but that's been refuted in the in the scientific literature. So the most widely accepted stromatolites date at 3.5 billion years old. And I think they're very widely accepted in the microbial light scientist community. So that's really the, the, the loaf of bread that is planet Earth. It only really just come out of the oven at that point. I mean, it was yes. it's ve- very, very early in, in our well history, planet history at all. Mm. And also this is an oven that was so hot that nothing could survive and cooled down to, in order to be able to cook stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. conditions probably weren't all that right for other types of life back then. So I think it's exciting to think that there was life living, living on the edge. You know, it's a quite an extreme place to thrive. 
but microbialites reign supreme from 3.5 billion years all the way up to just before the Cambrian explosion. And then after that, you know, we had lots of other animals that were outcompeting microbialites, but they essentially enjoyed that 2.5 billion years of life on the wow. planet. Yeah. So, and just like any people that come in and gentrify an area, especially coastlines, they started building condos. Yeah. So they, they started building towers. So, <laughs> and they so, started out at a few tens of centimeters in size, right up into hundreds of meters of scale. So, yeah, there was every everything in between. So you could have your granny flat right up to a condo. <laughs> For the listeners who don't know, we, we keep saying microbialites and stromatolites. Yeah. What, can what can you this... explain the, yeah. uh, the, their enormous anatomy and the way that they would traverse the landscape? Yeah, sure. In order that, being that they were like the precursors to dinosaurs. Yeah, so we should probably explain with what actually a microbial, we'll start with what a microbialite actually is. So it, we're not actually seeing the fossil. Sometimes we can find microfossils within the microbialite, but essentially what the microbialite is, is what a community of microbes have left behind. So they would build this structure that was their home, if you like, and the the microbialite is the structure that's left behind. So it's there as evidence that a microbial community was once flourishing. We have that in the fossil record, and that's what people like myself will study. And these- so you don't actually know exactly what the original organism looked like. Well, we do because there are some rare examples of microfossils captured within microbialite structures. So we do have that window and we can also use modern analogues. So obviously we have microbialites in places like the World Heritage Listed Shark Bay today that we can study and understand the community of microbes that are building the structures. For our international listeners, that's in Western Australia, on the coast of Western Australia. That's right. Yep, yep. And those 3.5 billion year old stromatolites are also from WA. So that's why I said these are the fossil of choice for a West Australian microbialite expert, because WA is unique, globally unique, in that we have the world's oldest microbialites there in the Pilbara, 3.5 billion years old. And we also have these wonderful analogues, the modern ones in Shark Bay and Lake Clifton and lots of really world renowned sites of modern microbialites here in WA. But what's special is that we have microbialites of every age in between. I think it's really easy to wow people and say that microbialites are 3.5 billion years. But I think what's (laughs) amazing is that they have that really, really long record on Earth as well. And we can see that here in WA. Are they only found alive in WA now or off the coast or are they found around the world? No, they're found around the world. They're found found all around the world. But uh, Shark Bay is one of the most diverse marine microbialite localities so Ah, that's what makes it special there's marine microbialites in two other places that are well described but yeah what's special about shark bay is that it has a really nice range of microbial morphologies there that have been studied and well documented it's a really wonderful site so these microbes, when they were alive, they, they all lived together. I mean, big mounds of microbes, so like tiny, tiny things you couldn't see with the naked eye. How do they build a tower? How tall are these towers? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I should probably explain that microbialite is the umbrella term and that stromatolites fall under that. Ah, so there's okay. different forms of microbialites. And I think a lot of people are more familiar with the term stromatolite. We'll keep using the word microbialite, but for all okay. intents and purposes, you can also use the word stromatolite interchangeably. Okay. It's just that stromatolites is one type of microbialite that is layered. So ah. it has 
have a layered structure. There's other types of microbialites. So there's thrombolites, which have a clotted structure. There's layerlites, which have no internal structure. There's also microbially induced sedimentary structures and dendrolites, which are dendritic in their macrostructure. So there's all different shapes and forms of microbialites and stromatolites is just one subset. So, sorry, to get back to you, there was two, there's two ways that a micro, microbial community will build a microbialite. They'll either trap and bind the sediment, so sediment raining into a system like a lake or a a marine system, Mm -hmm. and a sticky slime, if you like, will capture that sediment, and then the microbes will migrate out to the living edge, and they'll build a structure behind, leave a lithified surface behind, and then that's going over time. So they can trap and bind sediment in that way, and the other way that they build is by precipitating minerals. So they're very clever in that they can either precipitate their own home or they can make a home from the means that they have. But most microbial communities will have both processes occurring. So what happens if you're, if you're a microbialite and you're sitting on the ground or sitting in the water with your friends, living your life, you know, getting food out, and then suddenly debris comes down and gets stuck in your sticky layer and you're like, oh my goodness. And when it's too much, you kind of get on top of it and then push the, the what's now the, the mud and the rock down further or the, the, litho, litho, the, yeah, the, the, the lithified material. So basically you just keep pushing the rubbish that landed on you beneath yourself and you step on top of it. That's exactly right. So you leave a pile of rubbish behind. There's someone like myself gets really excited about in billions of years time. <laughs> yes, yes. So is that like a, a useful thing? I, I mean, it's good not to be covered by debris, of course, but... Yeah. Is it also if they go, yay, we keep building up, that means that's better for them as well? Is there an evolutionary advantage to go higher? Yeah, absolutely, because most of the microbial communities that are building these microbialites are photosynthesizing. So by building up, they're getting closer to the light source. Ooh, so there's okay. a definite advantage in accreting and growing up. Ah, yeah. So they're out-competing all of the other microbes nearby who are sort of sitting in, in the valleys of this. The valley. uh, Right, yeah. Oh, wow. So do they have to stay in the water or can they build out of the water? Well, that's really interesting. I work on subaqueous microbialites, so I look at the ones that are formed in lakes or marine systems, but there's a whole world of microbialites that are colonising sediments. So desert sands, there's soil crust that's all filled with microbes, and some of them might build structures that we would also classify as microbialites. I don't um, study those. How big do they have they found them? How big? Are, well, and in the case of stromatolites, because that's what they're the towery ones, aren't they? They're like the, the, they're the big... they have the layered structures. Ah, they have the layered structure. Okay, sorry. So, say microbialites. How? What's the largest microbialite condo that we found? The largest ones would be in the scale of hundreds of meters tall. Yes. Yep. So, when you were talking about hundreds of meters i was expecting i thought you meant they were lying down i I thought they were lines but you're talking about vertically like tall hundreds of meter structures yes yep so they can get hundreds of meters high and wide i mean that's the exception and that's you know people love talking about the oldest and the biggest so Mm. the biggest that they get is hundreds of meters but it's not out of the ballpark to just happen across some that are tens of metres in scale. So that's, the hundreds of metres is like the really top end there and you'd have to search around the globe to find those. But tens of metres is not out of the norm and plenty that I've worked on within WA are tens of metres in scale high and wide. So if you jumped into your TARDIS and went back three and a half billion years ago, 
you could walk on the shoreline, you could walk into what looks like a giant stone forest, just these towering structures coming out of the ocean. Yeah, exactly right. Yes. Yep. So the hundred, the example, hundreds of meters is around, is in the Neoproterozoic. So that's kind of the time that microbes really reigned supreme. I mean, they got to their maximum diversity and abundance. Yeah, it was in the the early the early Neoproterozoic, so in the Tonian period. So, what do these structures look? Do they look like dribble castles or mushrooms or like how do they? How would they appear? And how diverse is? Yeah, well, sort of vertical that, ones. That's the amazing thing about microbialites is how much diversity there actually is. So I've seen stromatolites that fit all of those descriptions. So some are mushroom shaped and some are just pinnacles and they're just so diverse. They're such a wonderful thing to study because they come in all shapes and sizes. There's ones that look like pillows. There's ones that look like big spires. Once you really delve into the Proterozoic and you, you can find them, they're beautifully branching, they're encrusting. Yeah, there's just so much diversity of this amazing fossil. I love them. So they are made from single-celled organisms, just lots of them working together. That's right. Yep. Yep. So, so I guess back then they were probably thinking to themselves, oh, look, we've done it. We're all working together. We're all these single cells, billions of us doing our things. It'll never get better than single cells working together like this. And, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then one day we came along with prokaryotes, I think, came along and went, oh, uh, well, we're lots of, we're also billions of cells, but we have iPhones. Yeah, so yeah. we're much better. We rained on that uh, single-celled organism parade. That's right. <laughs> yeah, come come back and talk to uh, organisms in a hundred thousand years' time. We'll see whether the uh, single-celled organisms <laughs> are still behind on the. Uh... Well, it's really funny that you say that because I, I mostly talk about microbialites reigning supreme in the Proterozoic, but in the Phenerozoic, so that's when we had complex organisms. After complex organisms evolved, like we had the Ediacaran biota start that, but the Cambrian was really like the big explosion of animal life with all the different types what what is really funny is that in times of mass extinction so there's five large mass extinctions that's been described in the Phenerozoic and after each of these microbialites reign supreme again so you know if you want to fast forward to the future and wonder if we completely destroy this planet and all of the complex life on it I would predict that we'll have microbialites reigning supreme once again well, there you go. So, what you're saying is, we have to start now and destroy them before they destroy us. That's, that's, <laughs> is that what you're? Is that what you're um, saying no, we should do? No, 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 no. They're the backup plan, Greg. Oh, right. Sorry. Like sorry. If we don't survive, they're our they're they're, they're our last chance. Okay. That's right. It'll come round circle once again. So. Kind of does lead into my next question, which kind of been answered. So they're not endangered. Then they're doing they're doing fine. <laughs> Well, that's the funny thing is that you think about these forms of life that are so long living and that they've been around on our planet for 2.5 billion years. But what's so unique about them, and this message sometimes get, gets mixed up, is that they're actually really vulnerable communities. So it's so strange to think in terms of they've been around for so long and successful for so long, but actually the living examples that we have here on Earth, they're very vulnerable to small amounts of change. They they are actually fragile. We could lose most of the microbialite diversity we have here in our like just in our generation. Okay, they're not that robust. And you were saying before that they take the photosynthesize, they take their energy from the sun. So you're not going to find deep sea microbialites or anything like that. You're not going to find the next events or in the dark down the bottom yeah. of the ocean. No, that's the cool thing about them is that you definitely do. So oh. the, the, 
the majority of microbialites that we work on do include photosynthesizing microbes in their communities. There are these really cool oddballs down in the deep oceans. They found microbial communities living under ice sheets. So oh. they're found in really extreme environments and there are examples of microbes that are using chemoautotrophs and they're, they're using things from their environment instead of sunlight for energy. Keeps- Chemo autotroph, hang on, let me see if I can work that out. So chemo autotroph is to eat, so basically chemical eaters. Yes, yeah, so they're taking things from the water column directly, yep. Oh. And yeah, so you find microbialites around black smokers, so they're, they're taking in all of that black smoker goodness and thriving down there in that environment. They're, they're eating chemicals, they're breaking chemicals apart, from what you're saying, so they're not breaking down detritus, they're not like a detritivore. No, 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 definitely not to that level of complexity, no. Okay. No. So they're just they're snatching chemicals out of the water column. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Breezing those. Okay. That's fascinating. So they kind of, now I'm spooked out because I just realized they're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. They so, really are everywhere. The more you look, the more you find microbialites. They're absolutely everywhere. So if I didn't just as a hypothetical, didn't clean my bathroom a lot. Yeah. Is there any chance <laughs> that I would come in one day and find a little footstool growing somewhere? Just just absolutely. just hypothetically not me not me I'm a very clean person but I'm just wondering <laughs> absolutely but it probably wouldn't be visible for many hundreds of years so you've got to remember they have an extremely slow growth rate so some of them 0.2 of a millimeter per year up to kind of two millimeters per year they would accrete so they're extremely slow growing so you'd have to have that experiment running on in your bathroom over multiple generations before you'd be able to say aha I've made a microbial art in the scum of my shower so well i'm already 20 years into it so i might as well continue (laughs) now for science (laughs) good luck with that (laughs) my great great grandson will be or granddaughter will be interested in publishing that with you (laughs) it was it was what if i can get a grant what if now if i can just get a grant to not clean my shower that'd be great yeah i guess this is the important scientific questions we ask on this podcast (laughs) <laughs> okay, so, so these can, so they, they, because they can grow anywhere. They don't have to be in water. They can grow in your bathroom. They can grow basically anywhere. Yeah. They do like environments in water, though. They do like water. Yes. Okay. Most of them are subaqueous, and you get examples of them forming desert crusts and things like that, but they, they have to have access to water as well. So they were doing this thing. They're growing you know, meters, um, you know, growing, sorry, a couple of millimeter or points a millimeter a year. They're getting up to mass, some of the massive sizes all over the world. And then one day something happened and they were no longer the big microbe on campus. They were relegated to the corners of life. What outcompeted them? Why do they, did they make bad debts? Did they, did they, <laughs> did they get, get involved in a pyramid scheme? Like what, what happened to them? Yeah, well, I guess some of them did because we do have nice conical things that are a bit pyramid-like in shape. But well, no. yeah. <laughs> but no, they, what happened was the evolution of life that outcompetes them. So we were having things evolve that would compete with them for substrate but grow at a much faster rate. So things like corals obviously inhabit the same tropical marine waters and they're easily outcompeting the microbialites that can only grow at a, a fraction of a millimetre to a few, few millimetres per year. Coral so they- famously fast at growing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
well, <laughs> not fast enough for, for the uh, threats that face them, I guess, but faster than microbialites. So, so would that be good news for the stromalites? <laughs> well, maybe a coral bleaching might completely decimate all of our coral oh. reefs. We might find mo- microbialites reigning supreme, but it will take yeah. a long time before we'd want to snorkel those areas because if they would take many hundreds of years to get in there. But it wasn't just things competing with them for substrate. It was also the evolution of animals that would start mixing up the sediments, things that were burrowing and it's sometimes called the Cambrian agronomic revolution. So things on the seafloor. <laughs> yes, comrade. Yeah. Yay for the revolution. <laughs> well, things at that point in time really changed where we had things not just living on the sediment, but they were living in the sediment and they were feeding within the sediment. So all of those things, the active seafloor really changed the seascape and the, the nature of lake systems and places that microbial arts were previously growing very happily undisturbed. Mm. Yeah, they, they just sort of got mowed over by a lawnmower, I guess. I remember learning about ants. We think about the soil in our lawn as being fairly static, but because the ants are always taking stuff down and bringing stuff back up, if you looked at it in fast or in slow motion, the whole thing would look like it was churning and boiling. And I suppose the same thing happens in a lot of seafloors. That's right. Yep. So we have all those organisms living within the seafloor and they're feeding in there. You know, they're making their homes in there. They're moving up and down as tides come in and out, water movement. They have, we have those beautiful acorn worms that live in the sediment and Mm. they can move up and down. And as as sediment rains in on them, they just move their home a bit higher. So they're just moving. The, 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 sea, the sea bottom is just moving and the sediment being redistributed all the time. And that's not the type of substrate that microbialites like. The reason they're thriving in Shark Bay is because there they're not being outcompeted. So that really hypersaline environment limits the amount of other life they can live where there's a very stable substrate. Oh, so you've got stuff like sea worms and sea pens and little crabs and stuff, and they're like, they won't touch the space because it's just too salty. Yeah, that's right. So it's a, it is a very productive environment. So there's large numbers of living things, but they're a small diversity. So a small number of things are thriving in that environment. So there, there's the bivalve cockle, the fragum, and that's so dense. It's like 40,000 individuals per square meter, but it's just the one type of organism rather than the diversity that you get in other open marine systems. So these microbes were sitting in their nice big scummy mats having a grand old time and then something evolved that started stealing all the, the strata and everything from them, basically took their, their roof that they were stomping all over them. Yeah, stomping all over them. Basically, they couldn't deal with that. And they obviously, they didn't evolve. Did anything evolve from them? I mean, maybe, maybe that's a weird question. How connected are we to them? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I I guess in some weird way, we could say we're connected in that did all life evolve from that single point, but Mm. I'm not too sure if that's the case. They're the most primitive form of life on Earth. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's really early on. And so their history is they're probably going to take over everything. They've got it in for coral from what it sounds like. That's that's fair enough. They're just sitting there going, yeah, coral, you're so pretty. Well, actually, that's a good question. When I think of a stromatolite, when I think of microbialites, I think of kind of a, a slimy rock 
and it's you know it's cool but if, if you didn't know what you're looking for you'd say it's a slimy rock do they ever get visually interesting to humans and not paleontologists like yourself but normal humans <laughs> like dan normal humans <laughs> yeah no, exactly. they are actually really visually pleasing so they do come in all different colors if you go and look at shark bay today or lake clifton the living surface actually comes in different cor- in different colors so it's not as vibrant or as exciting as maybe corals might be but it depends on where you snorkel I guess I mean everything to me looks pretty green in Coral Bay (laughs) so (laughs) I don't know it's horses for courses yeah I mean if you go to Shark Bay and look at that the microbial mat there I think to some people that is really beautiful so it's in different morphologies you know there's some that look a little bit like blackened cauliflower shapes and then there's other bits that's really bright orange there's other bits that are tufted and have beautiful little needle-like projections out of it I think they are a thing of beauty, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so you have to appreciate them, I guess. Some of the fossil ones are (laughs) are really stunning. I mean, one of the threats to some of the fossil sites is that they're targeted by commercial collectors because people really like them on their mantelpiece. So Ah. they are actually quite striking, particularly the ones that sometimes you get like an iron staining of them and that preferentially comes in the layers. So you can get like pink, white, grey layers and they're actually really pretty you sound quite defensive about that i'm sorry <laughs> i apologize i apologize for upsetting the uh the microbial lights. i didn't no, i didn't mean I, to i'm very used to it i'm very used to it Look, they're, they're a largely overlooked exciting part of life on our planet in my opinion so i think whenever i go out to schools and talk about being a paleontologist everybody always wants to know have i found a dinosaur fossil and I'm like, well, no, but I found fossils that are so much cooler than that. <laughs> Good. Greg, next uh, you're going to ask her, like, a, a lot of people have quite attractive kids. Are any of your kids attractive? Is that sort of the, the tone of question we're asking? Harsh. Harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. <laughs> I'm just thinking now, because I live in Western Australia myself, and about an hour and a half north of Perth, there's a place called the Pinnacles. And I just realised there's these these rocky outcrops. They sit high. They're like a metre or two above the ground. And I was wondering, are they stromatolites or microbialites, or is that a totally different structure? That's a really great question. But did you know, just at the turn off to the Pinnacles, if you go right, you go to the Pinnacles. If you go left, you go to Lake Thetis, where the living stromatolites are. I did not know this. (laughs) What? What? Oh! So you, okay. just, you took the wrong turn, basically. Oh, I've, been to, I've been to the Pentacles like three or four times. Yeah. Like that's, it's the only thing I visited in Western Australia that wasn't a bottle shop. <laughs> <laughs> and I missed it. I was on the, We took the wrong turn. But yeah, so there are actually living microbialites there at Lake Thetis that is just slightly west of the Pinnacles. They need a sign. There's no sign. (laughs) But look, I think the Pinnacles, I can explain a little bit about their formation and there is potentially some microbial involvement with their formation. But if we want to just step back and think Mm -hmm. about that landscape where you're kind of driving through the Pinnacles and you have those huge metre scale structures coming up off the substrate, I guess that you could imagine that there are some microbial landscapes that would look a bit like that if you were underwater. So yes. imagine that you're that you're snorkeling off the edge of a lake or maybe a marine system that's like four or five metres depth and then you're getting these microbialites forming a few metres in scale. So it, it does have some similar similarities in terms of the landscape and that their structures up off a substrate. So from that very basic point of view, you could say, oh, maybe. But but also I think the Pinnacles is really interesting in that there's a few 
ideas about how they're formed and I'm not I'm not an expert on this subject but I know a little bit about them and one idea is that they're solution pipes and that they are nucleating around tree roots or rhizoliths we call them so there is the potential that microbes were involved with that precipitating around a nucleus if you like so that's one way that they're formed and I think they could have been microbial involvement so you could look at it from both both ways but probably your best bet is just instead of turning right to the pinnacles turn left and go to the biggest and then you can see some real microbial life yes i will attempt to do that next time i will pull myself to the left instead of to the right and that's fantastic no you had no idea they were there goodness and me then, well, the geological survey has an excellent field guide to them so noah planavsky and kath gray wrote a field guide on the lake fetus stromatolites so you should definitely check those out i think there's a few different map forms that are described from the lake there and there's now a boardwalk so you and some signage you can see there uh, tell me for my next holiday send me a postcard <laughs> <laughs> what is the thing that that you think people should know about microbial lights that no one ever asks and you should be going oh i wish they'd asked me that question i wish this was the one thing that i could have told them i didn't get to say i think that they're the most useful fossil I think that wow, that's big call, big call. Not across the bow. <laughs> I really do believe that because we use them for correlation. Something that I do for the geological survey is I go out and I will help solve geological problems. So if there's two areas of geology and people are not sure if they correlate one way, we can attack that is by me looking at the microbialites and the same microbialites will be forming if the rocks are the same age. So that's that's something that I do with them. And if you think about the fact that they're the longest ranging fossil on Earth, so they go all the way from 3.5 billion years to now, just implementing that is just mind-blowing if you think about it. I mean, lots of paleontologists hone in on palynology, but that's only useful after those organisms evolved. The same with conodonts, the same with being a dinosaur expert. You're only looking at that very one small window of the past, but microbialites have the power that you can look at any time of life on Earth and understand Earth processes and what was happening between the geosphere and the biosphere and the hydrosphere and the atmosphere. It's a really powerful fossil for understanding Earth's history and life story. So I really love that fossil. And they're often overlooked because, look, if you're working in a system where there are dinosaurs or microbialites to choose, most people would go for the dinosaur. (laughs) They're the underdog. They're the underdog of paleontology. So, well, if you got a microscope, like I assume your work involves microscopes. Yes, yep. So okay, I, you don't just get real close. Well, yeah, both. <laughs> so, <laughs> I do get up close and personal with them in the field, but then I bring them back. And uh, so, to study microbialites, you have to go from the outcrop scale right down to the microstructure. So, I study them in the field. So, I'm a field geologist, and I'll go out and make a description of them in the field, and then I will collect samples and bring them back to the lab and then I'll have to cut them and make thin sections. So I slice them down to 30 microns in thickness and look at them under the microscope. And so you'd be looking at certain patterns and shapes to tell you both A, that they were present and B, when and where they're from? Yes. Yep. That's right. Yep. So I more use the, the outcrop work that I do to say that they're present. So I wouldn't usually collect something and decide if it's a microbialite back in the lab. By that stage, I've already made the field description. So you look at bed forms. So the fact that they do create a structure up off the substrate, that's something that you can read in the rocks in the field. 
So by the time I brought it back to the lab, I've already decided it's a microbialite. And then I do the description based on my field observations. So it can have branches, it can have domes, it can have a fractal kind of shape. So it looks on the large scale for all intents and purposes, what it looks like on the smaller scale. Oh, wow. all, All those things are really, yeah, that's a really exciting part of looking at microbialites is that you can investigate that relationship. And it's so interesting to see how many things things actually reflect what they look like on the macro scale in the micro scale so you're looking at a thin section and you could blow that up and imagine it as meters in scale and it's exactly the shape you're seeing in the outcrop so that's something really weird about microbial arts that I find interesting as well. When you're looking at new ones or modern ones <laughs> live ones yeah do they look different to the ancient ones are, are they are the ancient ones all in like flares and platform shoes and big afro hair and the modern ones are sort of uh you know um whatever people wear now <laughs> mostly that actually it's all it's all cyclical well that's what you well yes they keep coming back but well, are they very different to their forebears or are they just just been trundling along happily for billions of years No, definitely for sure. We see a lot more diversity in forms and how they look in the fossil record than we see today. Oh, okay. So there's far more diversity in the rock record and there's some microbialites that we still haven't found great analogues for today in the modern environment because today they're really restricted to those extreme environments. Mm. So we're not seeing the full suite. And that's something that I think... Sometimes we struggle with as well that when we are interpreting microbialites in the rock record, it's very easy to make that comparison to systems like Shark Bay, for example, and just think of them as very shallow marine and restricted environment. But it's important to remember that they were in different environments in the fossil record. Mm. So that the modern analogue can sometimes cloud what we think about the fossil record and we have to keep it in the context of understanding that they actually were found in a broader range of places in the fossil record. So it's not that the modern ones are lazy. We're not, <laughs> we're not telling them to fly straight and get your, get your act together like you're like back in my day, we fanned out right across all the environments and you young whippersnappers just want to live in Shark Bay in your condos. You just want to sit on the couch, That's right, yeah. slowly accumulating debris. <laughs> you can feel free to maybe give them that pep talk at Lake Thetis and see how you go. Maybe we'll end up <laughs> funky forms in a few years' time and then I'll know where it's all at. Thank you. Yes, good. <laughs> Greg, Greg, what about newspaper? Strange man seen yelling at, at Lake. Uh, <laughs> Get your act together. Get it together. Fan out. That's right. So are there any experiments to try to grow these things in a laboratory setting? Yeah. Beyond, yeah. beyond my bathroom, yes. Yeah, heaps of labs around the world have experiments growing microbialites. So I'm an expert on the fossil one, so I don't really get to delve into that too closely, but I do definitely dream of growing my own microbialites. <laughs> my professor at GSWA, she uh, was known for having microbialites in her freezer very often <laughs> for studying, but I don't get to grow my own microbialites, unfortunately. So in the future, in 10 years, do you think it's possible that we could see Godzilla versus Kong versus Stromatolites? Like oh, as in absolutely. just grow them, like grow it to giant skyscraper size. <laughs> my- and who would win? My money would totally be on the microbial art. <laughs> I like people who are happy to uh, put of it course. down there. <laughs> well, it's got a lot going for it, you know, it's slimy, it's big. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> Godzilla just stumped on Shark Bay. Oh no! <laughs> You've just made a powerful enemy, Godzilla. <laughs> so Heidi Allen, paleontologist, thank you very much for chatting with us today. I didn't expect to be as excited or interested in microbialites as I am right now. And oh. I and and I feel that I've wasted my life. Wasted I should have been studying studying the uh, stromatolites and microbialites my entire life. So thank you very much. <laughs> My mission accomplished then. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Good fun. Thank you, Heidi Allen. That was such a brilliant conversation. I really want to see one of these things in person now. Well, come on over to the Western Australia. I'll take you up to Shark Bay and we can have a look at the fake ones and the and the fake ones, the fossilised ones, and the living ones as well. That sounds like a hoot. It's when we can, when we can travel again. Oh, I am so excited by the concept that if you had a time machine, if we got into the Smart Interpreter time machine and went back in time, you kind of get an idea that, oh, it'll just look like now, but then. It'll just be, the clocks, the calendars will be further back in time. When you look at the calendar on the side of the tree, it'll just be an earlier year, but otherwise it'll look exactly the same. No grass. All ferns. We talked about that in the podcast before. Grass is relatively new. Dinosaurs existed before grass. Well, they kind of came into existence around when grass did. So that wouldn't have grass if you went back far enough. And then also, now I go, well, hang on. If you went back billions of years, you'd have these you have these forests of maybe hundreds of metres, or at least tens of metres of these stacks just coming out of the water. It's And that's alien as heck. That's yeah, really like weird. It looked like a 1970s sci-fi novel. Like the yes. cover of one of them. Yeah, it's and it, you would go, and if you didn't know, if you got knocked on the head and put into a time machine and you didn't know if it was a time machine or a spaceship, then you would not necessarily know you're on planet Earth. Like you, you would, yeah, it's just, it's, it would truly be an idea. It would be all wrong and worse, but you know, usual stuff. But fantastic. I just, my goodness, thank you, Heidi, for blowing my mind. <laughs> Because I don't think I'm that neurotypical. I'm a bit neurodiverse in a way that's not fun for other people. (laughs) Really? And you go, no, no, no. Not everyone is going to be a delightful manic pixie dream girl. No one's going to be like, oh, my God, I'm amazing. I'm all neurodiverse. And you're like, I'm neurodiverse. I kind of like to kill animals. Yes, that's true. I just get a thrill from that, you know, taking their life. Have you ever read Dracula? It's time for the Walk of Shame, where you, the listener, tell us where we've made a mistake and help us get on the road to purity. Shame me, Daddy. Shame me. Eric Wilson heard you infer that Texas is the only US state with its own power grid. In fact, Alaska has the Alaska interconnection. Two power grids in Alaska that are not interconnected. Oh, fair enough. Thank you, Eric. There is also Hawaii, mm. which has its own power grid. But I can't <laughs> figure out why that might be. I haven't worked that one out yet. <laughs> y- yes, of course. When I, I was thinking of the contiguous 48, as they like to call them, I, I did not bring into Alaska, which is really Russia anyway. We all know that. And, and Hawaii, which is Russia really... does. <laughs> and Hawaii, which is part of the Pacific Island. No, it's not. It's not part of the Pacific Island chain at all. I'm just saying all sorts of crazy things now. I'm just... Yep. Isn't it? I thought no, it- no, no, no. It's it's in the Pacific, but it's it's not same. It's not like the Philippines, and it's not like those Vanuatu and New Caledonia, and it's not oh, Philippines. I think I'm, it's not part of the that line. It's it's a it's a hot spot across the Pacific Ocean that's moving west to east and is making islands pop up. I thought they were all the same ge- geologically. Oh, here we go. Walker shaming inside the walker shaming, maybe same underwater pointy jaw. 
I think, here's my take on it. I think that the ones that, like Vanuatu and the rest, they're on the ring of fire. So they're at the edges of plates or near the edges of plates. So one's subducting beneath, that's what's subducting, going mm-hmm. under the other. And that's causing things to pour. I think Hawaii isn't, isn't the edge of a plate. I think Hawaii is a hot spot in the plate underneath is a uh. and it's moving and well it's not moving the plate is moving across it over millions of years and it's melting the crust above it and that's a different thing mm. happy to be wrong geologists please get in contact and yell at me but i pretty i that's my take on it oh cool all right well as we're talking about things that are probably going to end up being wrong <laughs> You remember the last podcast, we were talking about falling through the planet and all the elements that would stop you from getting to the other side. Mm-hmm. Shane Lynch wrote in to say, as you pass through the centre of the Earth, you pass through the core of a powerful electromagnet. That movement <laughs> in a magnetic field will generate electric currents in your body in anything that conducts well enough. Mm. In my case, it is my gold crowns in my teeth. He says also blood cells and bone. The current generates heat from resistance and a magnetic field. That personal magnetic field then interacts with the Earth's magnetic field, slowing you down. Hmm. Sorry, Dan, I don't think that jumping through the tunnel at the North Pole will result in you getting to the South Pole. You will be short. How short? I'm retired. I don't have to do the math. (laughs) That is a really cool observation. Uh, gold in a magnetic field will warm and become slightly magnetized, creating its own magnetic field that will interact with the Earth's magnetic field. This takes energy out of your velocity. We're not all from gentry, and we don't all have gold literally attached to our body. But we do have another <laughs> metal in our bodies. Healthy humans have around 3.5 grams of iron in our blood and bones. Mm-hmm. Now, first things first, is the Earth an electromagnet and not just a magnet? I would say it's just a magnet. The way that it gets magnetism is from rotating and ionizing stuff and creating its own electricity. This electricity powers up the electromagnet. And also uh, from the interaction with the sun's gravity. So it is effectively an electromagnet in space. Huh, okay, yes. Now, next question. How strong is the Earth's magnetic field? One Earth's one Earth magnetic field strength thing. Yes, that is correct. Or as they sometimes known as garbage, just completely weak as. It is thirty micro Teslas at the equator and sixty micro Teslas at the pole. It's enough to do what it needs to do, which is stop our atmosphere being stripped off our planet. So, you know, let's not crap on it too much here. Most of the time, like, it, it would be better if it was boosted up a bit. We would have less complete annihilation of human civilization from solar flare once every yeah. 100,000 years. If sure. It was just a little bit stronger. Yeah. But, 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 but hang on. I just, yeah. go, this is, I love it when people go, let's just change the environment just a little bit because <laughs> you, <laughs> nothing will go let's wrong. Let's change the universal constant just to yeah, get yeah. it a little bit warmer and toastier for everyone in winter. <laughs> I still think that you'd have an issue then if you had the magnetic field higher, you will, you will get more current flow in metal because metal moving through a magnetic field generate a wire or metal creates a current we'd all get more static blasts and i get enough of them anyway dan so every time i touch a metal thing i get a little zap on a, on a dry day it would increase and that's that's the minimal side of it it would get worse and worse we could probably have currents jumping it could probably get quite depends how powerful your magnetic field wants to be yeah be careful about that 
just before you do anything weird with the with the core of the planet, Dan. The core of the just planet. Think it, just think it through. That's all I'm asking. I've, I've, I've assembled a team. <laughs> okay, so how strong is thirty microteslas at the pole? That's a half an Elon. <laughs> Sorry. Um, are you saying for- that an Elon is worth a hundred and twenty? Oh no, yeah, no, yeah, microtesla. Yeah, no, it's an Elon. A full Elon would be tiny, tiny compared to a Tesla. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's it's forty five micro racisms. <laughs> Uh, we were talking about injuring animals before. I imagine <laughs> boning pigeons is one of them. Um, all right. So a bar magnet, a children's toy, mm. is 10 mic... Oh, I've got something wrong here. Uh-oh. I'll bug it up there. Hang on. 30 millitesslas at the equator and 60 millitesslas at the pole. A bar magnet is 10 microteslas or 165 times as strong as the Earth. Sure. So there's not a very strong field when you're dropping through that hole in the Earth, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is very big. It's acting on you as uh, for the entire fall, and you're going through it at a ridiculous speed. It is the largest of the terrestrial planets in our solar system, the Earth. Everyone craps on the Earth. And you go, oh, it's so small. Look at Jupiter. Look at Saturn. Look at Uranus. Look at Neptune. Look at the gas giants and the ice giants. But Earth, we are the largest of the terrestrial planets. Thank you very much. You said look at Uranus. All right. So it's acting on you as you fall. Very weak. Very big. Also, on top of that, the strength of the field increases by 50 times at the centre of the planet. Mm. There's definitely some effect here of Mm. our magnetic field. Now, we have iron in our blood. If we put a magnet on our skin, does that mean that the blood moves towards the magnet? That could be a concern. Well, iron is a component of haemoglobin. The haemoglobin attaches to an oxygen molecule and takes it through the body. When it's attached to oxygen, it lines up in such a way that it repels magnetic forces. When the oxygen is replaced with carbon dioxide, it attracts to magnets. The force, though, is very weak. Even in an MRI, your blood flow is going to be forcing that blood through your body. The magnetic forces are like blowing on a boat as it travels down a cascade. It takes a lot of magnetic force to be noticed by the human body. If you Mm. get into an MRI and it serves up three Tesla or 23,000 times the Earth's field and you move your head back and forth, you can induce an effect. Three Tesla? That's That's like three quarters of a million dollars. Let's just move away from the whole Elon Musk thing. Oh, okay, think... fine, fine. That's... We, we've okay. talked about Elon Musk enough on this podcast, and then we <laughs> realised there were reasons not yeah. to. No, no, I was talking about the car that time. I was talking about actually, you know, as in, you know, a, a Tesla S is about $250,000. Did you see his the Hyperloop test thing where they got into a Tesla and it just drove down a tunnel? Like a tunnel <laughs> that's not big enough to open the doors of the car. Yeah. So the first time there is a breakdown, just a whole bunch of people get stuck and suffocate. That'd be it's fine. Ridiculous. He's an. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with him. On the on the other hand, he just he'll be sending people to the moon. So he's the he won the the context to, to the, the the contractors to do the final lunar landing for the Artemis missions. So. Uh, right. Will he give those people weekends? Oh, probably not. No unions to sort of battle for it. They work for the American government. They don't get weekends. They don't get holidays. <laughs> they, have to, they have to work 60 hours a week and thank thank their patrons uh, for the uh, privilege. Uh, Anywho. <laughs> I didn't want to go down this. 
no, let's let's just edit all this out then, shall we? Oh no, it's too late for that. So, oh, boo. Scientists at the Utilities Threshold Initiative Consortium have said moving quickly induces a time-varying field. So by doing that, you're inducing currents in different structures of your brain. These currents may lead to nausea, loss of balance, a metallic taste in your mouth, or, in some cases, magnetophosphines. Magnetophosphines are flashes of white light caused by your retinal cells being magnetically stimulated. I saw this in action in a documentary called Godzilla vs. Kong. And <laughs> it's, no, 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 no. It's, a, it's about this giant lizard fighting his giant monkey. It's really important. And in that, the giant monkey Is that spoilers. David Attenborough one? Yeah, yeah, it was David Attenborough. It was some, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty certain David Attenborough. And the, the giant monkey needs to go to the hollow earth. And they travel in spaceships to the hollow earth. And in that, they travel in through this. Spaceships? Oh, uh, it, 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 it was a hollow earth. It, look, it was magical. It was a magical glowing vehicle. Don't. It was a giant monkey fighting a giant lizard, Dan. Let's not let's all calm down here. And they You're they, the one putting forward that this is a documentary. You need to put in the marginal amount of effort. It's a wonderful documentary. And in that they travel they're traveling into the crust of the earth and they travel what they call a gravitational inversion event. And that's why they have to have this spaceshipy thing, otherwise they'll get ripped to pieces. So they can from that point on they can be dancing on the ceiling. Well, and they can, they, or they could just be splattered over a wide area. Now they need a spaceship to get through, but the giant monkey just drops in. But it's fine. But they see lots of white light. It gets very two thousand and one, like weird lighting effects, and woo 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 going past them. Now at the time, I just thought that's just that's just artistic license. But now I realise it. They thought it was gravitational, but actually it was magnetic, and they were getting the phosphines and the flashes of light. That's what it was. Magnetophosphines. Magnetophosphines. So, therefore, there was more fact in Godzilla vs. Kong. Excellent. Excellent. And you know what the important part of Godzilla vs. Kong is? You know what the the greatest power in Godzilla vs. Kong is? The the most important. Isn't the most important thing that the mammals win? You reptiles, you fucking cold-blooded pricks. Friendship, Dan. Friendship is what is, is the most powerful thing. Is is well, not friendship. Grudging respect between a monkey and a lizard. That sounds disappointing. Oh, they they do beat each other up a lot. But first, though, you, you know how real yeah, friendship is. One of them kill the other. I'm real into animals killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> they they don't. I'm sorry. They kill something. Interest. <laughs> Concentration. The okay. most of it, actually, I'm going to say nearly everyone in Hong Kong. <laughs> Because there's no way that there's no way that city was evacuated in time. There's no way, and they lay waste to Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is a very highly populated city. And you see people running around. Everyone in Hong Kong is basically dead. They must be. There must be the, the, the death toll. It made me laugh at one point. Godzilla attacks a city in in America and goes berserk and fires his atomic breath everywhere. And then you see, and you're watching from a news, and it says nine people dead, thirty injured, and you're like, that's bullshit. There's no way that that atomic breath lizard killed nine people and injured thirty. It it is, killed. Is this in Hong Kong? No, no, no. This is the American city. Earlier on, this is the, right, the, the right. first I attack. Those, I imagine that would be even less in Hong Kong because that's now under Chinese rule. Yes, right? China says Godzilla gave everyone a nice pat and said we were great. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get uh, banned by the great cancelled, cancelled by the CCCP. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it used to be the only podcast that you could you could get on mainland China, and now that Xi Jinping's going to stop us at all. Uh, I am going to stop our talk about <laughs> him before we end up in the poop. So, the... <laughs> The uh, no 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 don't, no, no, don't no. infer anything from that no no the, no no I'll let uh, you so we were talking about MRI machines oh yeah sorry their no. effect on the human body now an MRI mm. machine is pretty much the most powerful magnet that you're going to be exposed to as a human being mm. so let's instead travel to magnetar beautiful magnetar magnetar <laughs> is a neutron star with a magnetic field of one thousand trillion times stronger than Earth made famous. By the line in one of the Nirvana songs. The the banana songs? No, no, no. One of the songs by Nirvana. 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 Yes. Banana. But yeah, good it old banana. like teen bruising. Um, is it heart-shaped? Is it heart-shaped box? Heart-shaped box. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So he mentions magnetars. What a clever fellow. Hmm. Yeah, well... For Paul all our Sutter. listeners who are so we aren't forty, yes, that, Nirvana was a band in the nineties. No, 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 no. Look it up. The greatest it's band fun. in the nineties, a defining band of the nineties. Yeah, defining band of the nineties. The greatest, the greatest band of the nineties was either Presidents of the United States or Ooh, that's good. or Custard. Custard was pretty good. No, let's go with let's go with Pot USA. Okay, all right, cool, cool, cool. No, I'll give you that. It's fine. One's international. I have a special thing for Custard because they're an Australian band, and at the end of the 90s, they were like, and we're out. I'm like, oh, I respect that so much. Like, we're a 90s band. But I looked them up recently. They did actually reform because, you know, money, but they're a 90s band. It's fine. So did the presidents of the United States. They broke up after two albums, and they got they got back together like nine times for like and individual did, shows. And then they also they also brought on different... Drummers and guitarists. They did get and a new and, musician at some point, yes. Yeah. So technically, and then they, and then someone asked them, do they want to come back again? I was looking up recently. This is why I'm thinking of this. Like, like now, like they did in 2016, they released an album, like, and then they were like, are you going to, are you going to tour this? And they were like, nah, we're old men. Not, you shouldn't be watching us. We're, we're old men now. <laughs> we should stop. We should, you should stop asking us and we should stop doing it. And I was like, yay. <laughs> Actually, you know who's a really big fan of presidents of the United States? Who's that? A Paul Sutter, an astrophysicist of an Ohio State University, who also says this about magnetar. On an atomic level, the strong magnetic field of magnetar would move all of the positive charges in your body in one direction and the negative mm. charges the other direction. Spherical atoms would stretch out into ellipses and soon they would start mm. to resemble thin pencils. That drastic change in shape would interfere with basic chemistry, causing the normal forces and interactions between atoms and molecules in your body to break down. The first thing you would notice <laughs> is your entire nervous system, which is based on electrical charges moving throughout your body, is going to stop working. And then you basically dissolve. <laughs> but at least you wouldn't feel it. No. You can't. The signals would Yeah, that's true. That's true. All the pain gets caught at your elbow. Well, that's that that happens to my granddad. Um, but the big question is, is Shane correct about our energy being lost, preventing us from reaching the other side of the planet? Mm. The answer is, well, mm. kind of. Because Ooh. while there is a little bit of ferrous metal in our body turning movement into heat, there is a lot more of something else. Water. 
Water is gently repelled by a magnetic field. It's the result of diamagnetism, a much weaker version of ferromagnetism that has been used by scientists to levitate small objects, including a frog and a mouse. <laughs> yeah, it's science. Yeah. Because when I see a frog, I think to myself, look, it's fine, but it'd be much better if it was half a centimetre off the ground. Oh, it gets higher than half a centimetre off the ground. Ooh. Now, if a body filled with water passed at speed through an electromagnetic field of the Earth, this effect is going to work against the velocity of the falling body. Mm. A frog was able to be levitated at 1,000 times the strength of a bar magnet, which itself is three times stronger than the Earth's core. This means that one three-thousandth the energy needed to pull you all the way through at full speed is being taken away from you. Mm. You've got to travel 1,200 kilometres. This means that you may end up falling up to four kilometres short of your Uh destination. Uh Uh-oh. Again, we have to do much more math to work it out, but it would at least be a few hundred metres that you would fall short of reaching the other (sighs) side of the planet. You're You're like, ah! Ah, you'd be like, do that whole scrabbling thing, just desperately clawing at the air yep. to see the light in the distance. Everyone, go, um, Vin Diesel reaching down going, give me your hand. Like, ah! Yeah. Mm. So thank you very much, Shane. That was a really brilliant observation. If you want to do this, there's a cool experiment, Lenz's Law. We talk about Lenz's Law here and inducing eddy currents in, in magnets. And you can actually do this. You can actually get a copper tube and a magnet that just fits the copper tube and you drop the magnet through the tube and it invokes electrical currents which creates a magnetic field in the tube and it slows the magnet down as it falls down so you can drop it you can time it like drop it from head height normally and time it how it talks to hit the ground and then you can get a tube the same length and drop it and it will slow it down as it slowly slowly drops down just by its own magnetism invoking these electrical currents invoking an inverse magnetic field which repels it well no repel it slows yeah. it down and there's a, there's a cool. lot of really cool videos on youtube for this sort of stuff as well. Uh, there's a bunch of info that I use for this that is in the show notes. And if you're particularly interested in diomagnetism, I stumbled upon this really well-presented video about it from some YouTube channel called Psycom. So that'll be linked to you. Excellent. So when we do this, when we when we travel into the planet, we just have to have a ladder system, really, for the last couple hundred metres. Just well, a kilometre of ladders. Just make sure you just grab onto that and then you can, you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. A harpoon. You, 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 someone's job. You could be like the. You could be the Earth whaler, and then that's the person who goes, and then you go, and you can. Gotcha, boy! And they pull you up. <laughs> so, if you hear Greg make a mistake, please do reach out to me, Dan at smartenough.org. And if Dan makes an error, then you can always and forever contact me at Greg at smartenough.org. And someone better look up that uh, that hotspot. Under Hawaii thing. <laughs> Get on that. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Science is perfect. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, everyone. I'm more worried about the science I got wrong in Godzilla versus Kong. <laughs> no one else is worried about the science they got wrong in that. <laughs> you have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. Also Greg at smartenough.org. You can do any of the subscribing things that you need to at the website by pressing on the buttons at smartenough.org. There are also some show notes that uh, you should jump in and have a look at. Yeah. When you're sitting there going, where do these people make this rubbish up? We don't make it up. We take it from 
re- reputable sources and ruin it. It's what we do. It's part of our, it's part of our joy. In, as a part of our pay it forward experience, I would recommend to you another podcast from the That's Not Canon Network called Kill My Darlings. Ooh. So Kill My Darlings is the progress of Hayden Rogers as he writes a fantasy novel. It's all about deconstructing stories and creating worlds and working out what does and doesn't work when you're writing. Sorry, a fantasy as in I was wearing leather boots and chapless pants. Chapless pants? Arseless chaps. That's what I'm trying to say. That sort of fantasy? No. Mm. No more dragons mm. and knights and magic and stuff. But I, was I, wearing, I, I was wearing a dragon as I had my buttless armour. But the great thing is that if you listen to the podcast, you can then write in and say where he's making mistakes. And if you're like, well, I don't think there's enough arseless chaps work going on. And I think that's, that's where your writing is really falling down. He's got to <laughs> embrace it. That's, and I think that's, so listeners of our podcast, go to his podcast and totally take over. It is an interactive <laughs> podcast. <laughs> So he's trying to work out what does and doesn't work. You can mm. explain to him why things are a bad idea. He's relying on us, the listener, to kill his darlings or mm. apparently to dress them in arseless chaps and make love to them. No, no, no just just arseless chap armour. Just just the... Right. right. Oh, because women in fantasy are always wearing bikinis. You think that that's... Yeah. Like we should, that he should be designing his armor with that in mind and justifying why that makes it a more effective armor yeah. and dress all of his dudes in that sort of revealing clothing as well. I think it's because, here's my theory, is that you can, if you were sitting on a horse, you're going because, you know, it's very heavy bits of armor and you want to make, you want to be able to feel what the horse is doing. If you've got metal plates on your bum, you can't get that connection between your body and the horse. You can't become one with the horse. Your, your buttocks are already protected from attack by a horse. By the horse, you see? And so there, you can feel it. You can give your butt clenches a certain way and you go, oh, well, it needs to turn left, but you can kind of give little knee things and the horse is like, yes, that feels much nicer. And It's, it's like yeah. runners who don't want to wear those big chunky shoes. They want to wear like the, like the foot gloves. Exactly right. And we need to... That's Look, there we go. So there we have it. We've got a really good idea. We need to have no butt armor so that you can better ride a horse into battle i think we should definitely approach hayden rogers with this idea i'm really enjoying the podcast i love thinking about storytelling and dissecting it i love the process of making stories it's also in very digestible bits each episode is about 10 minutes long have a look do it go to podcast machine and type in kill my darlings and have a listen see if it's for you if you would like to Recommend, recommend, support, support. If you'd like to support the podcast, <laughs> you can also recommend it to people. We're happy. We're happy to do that. Too, recommend please. it to people. That's that's yeah. how we want you to support us. That's Tell right. Tell everyone because then they'll like. They're like, oh, I didn't know there was a podcast about science, comedy, and ignorance. That sounds right up my alley. If you want to support us financially, we don't stop you yeah. from doing that. No, we don't need you to. But if you want to, no, sure. We don't, but we like it. We do we like, it. like it. a lot. We are filthy capitalists. We, let's let's be brutally honest. We're filling up our money bin. We are. We, we are. don't even spend it. We're just filling our money bin mm. up with coins. One so day we're going to swim, swim in it. it. Oh, yeah, one day. Great. And I'm sure that the uh, aerodynamics or flu- the hydrodynamics of <laughs> coins it will yeah. allow that. That's true. That's why Bitcoin's not going to work. Because what are we going to swim in? Yeah. So there are a bunch of different tiers. Also, you can drop stuff in a tip jar or buy a shirt. But if you join our Comedy Blimp crew, then mm-hmm. we will shout you out on the podcast and give a big thank you. And that's what I'm going to do now. Thank, thank you very you. much to Matt Ewers, Elizabeth Yunkin, Britta Rogowski, 
Granny Maguire, Matthew Toy, Christopher Revel rhymes with spell, <laughs> Steve E, Andrew Potts, Phil Holland, Avi Greenbury, Lana Mitchell, Ivan, Andrew Whitehurst, Lindsay Jenkinson. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. We thank you. We do appreciate it. It's very kind. Now we do have another tier. I was pondering the patrons and the fact that we have a group of people who pay us extra to abuse mm. them. And I mm. noticed something, Greg. Mm. There are no women in the group. And I thought, is what? this because men earn an average 15% more <laughs> than women? That women don't have the same disposable income? But then something mm. occurred to me, Gregoire. It's about mm. supply and demand. Ooh. We charge a fee to abuse women on the internet. But it turns out, Gregoire, that they <laughs> can get that service for free. They, they can. If you're what? a woman on the internet and you want to be humble, if I, humble, if I, hum, hum, humiliated, if you want to be yes. humiliated on the internet, the world is your fucking oyster. <laughs> Once again, the cis white man misses out. Thanks a lot, misogynists. I honestly can't understand how it's monetized. It seems completely unsustainable to me, Gregoire. Mm, mm. Well, if they can cut our lunch, then I can cut theirs. Oh, no. What are we doing, Dan? I will be repurposing the very worst misogynist comments to abuse our male patrons. Dan, what are we doing? We're going to get cancelled. Dan, Dan, we didn't talk about this. I'm uncancelable. That's not true, Dan. That is not true. You that's can't... like that's like someone who's like, I'm bulletproof and then puts a gun to their head. Do you know what I mean? Like oh. <laughs> Mikhail Kadar, you can't keep complaining about being cut off mid-sentence, Mikhail. You need to use a forceful voice, stop ending your sentences in a question, and stop avoiding conflict. Make your presence known. <laughs> Tom Siri, Tom. You've got to stop being so assertive in the meetings. You're coming off as a real bitch. (laughs) And finally, Steve Stewart. Steve Stewart has a long history of problematic shit and he probably never listened or learned from. Racism, homophobia, transphobia, good f***ing riddance, bitch. Toxic to the core, terrible human being. Dislikes Asians too. About time Steve Stewart got cancelled. Can't stand that human being. Jenny Nicholson, you're next. This is brilliant, Greg. I found comments on a Lindsay Ellis tweet and this stuff writes itself. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah, it's oof. It's pretty full on, isn't it? I'm it's, starting to really warm to Lindsay Ellis. <laughs> I found this group on the internet with ContraPoints and mm. Jenny Nicholson and Lindsay Ellis and H-Bomberman. And, like, I'm totally into the way that they kind of dissect stuff and mm. really mm. thoughtfully engage with stuff. I'm really into it. ContraPoints is amazing. Natalie Wynn. When Natalie Wynn's videos come out... I stop what I'm doing and watch them. Even though they'll probably go for an hour and 40 minutes, they are they are superb. And as in not just something I didn't really understand about trans issues and, and not just or not even about trans issues, but there's a lot of that. But also, yeah, just her knowledge of philosophy and her comedy stylings. I really enjoy that, too. Anyway, that's yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, other top tier patrons who don't want insults have to listen to a song about being my ex-girlfriends. <laughs> Greg, you don't look... You, you squinty, look I'm, squi- I'm yeah. squinty-eyeing. I'm squinty-eyeing a lot. 
<clears throat> yes, I am. I am bemused. Morton O'Hare broke it off with a hard stare. He told me he was leaving and he didn't really care. Al Batson wrote up the flaws and all the stats and drove off in a Datsun with pictures of Batson. Michael Barnes said I didn't have any charms when I said he should stay. He registered alarm. Sean Sipkin, he didn't see our shared life in when I challenged his view. He put a big knife in. Scott Driscoll just took a cyanide pill. <laughs> but I'm hoping stick around that you will. Dun dun da 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 dun. Uh. <laughs> So thank you very much to all of our top tiers. I'm and confused. Also to the flight of the Concords for uh, the uh, the use of their song. Carol Brown just took a bus out of town, which they didn't agree with. But I'm assuming they're going to be cool with it. They, they seem like cool guys. They, yeah. Jermaine Clement seems like a very nice person. They, well, they're from New Zealand. They're all nice over there. So yeah, remember, walk shame. If we did anything wrong. And also, if any audience members can tell me who organised all of my patrons into a choir and got them to sing, that would be good. Yeah, Are you not familiar with this song, Greg? These are, these are killer gags. You I don't know. I, I watched don't, Carol Brown just took a bus out of town? No, I've never heard Well, it. it'll be in the show notes. So anyone else <laughs> as mystified as Greg, you're going to enjoy that. <laughs> For some reason, I thought its reach was, lo- was longer. <laughs> and as we always like to say... Vin Diesel, Earth Harpooner. Yeah, sorry about that, Dan. I apologize. I didn't. I didn't make you a co-host. I don't do it on the on the Twitter bio. I don't make you a full-fledged member in the no. eyes of my, <laughs> my Twitter. So yeah, thank you, Dan. Yeah, that's right. You just you're just regular guest. Dan calls himself the host of the podcast, and I call myself a co-host. But in my mind, a co-host means one of two hosts. In Dan's mind, it means host and person who's not as important as the host. So, well, if it makes you feel better, I'm just the guest, so I guess I'm oh, further down the pecking order oh, for, this, for this call. <laughs> you, are, you are the most important person on this call right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Guest comes above host. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. I'm going to assume, Dan, it goes in your mind, host, guest, co-host? No, no, not at all. (laughs) I'm glad it's established. (laughs) Yes, so that could be hundreds of metres. Hang on, she'll make a bit of noise and then she'll sit down. Great. Now there's someone else in the podcast who outranks me. Sorry about that. She's 14 years old. She's she's very elderly. She's 94 in dog years. That's that's a lot of wisdom. Dog wisdom, but wisdom nonetheless. (laughs) Well, when you emailed me, I thought, oh, I better check if this is a legit podcast. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. You didn't check hard enough. (laughs) Dance. I said no targeted ads. Basically, anything I can, I just go, no, nah, don't store anything, don't keep anything, and I just skip every ad. Like, I, I, if I'm on my computer, if I'm on my couch, I go, nope, skip ad. I don't allow it to play an ad. I don't want it to know, that, like, you, you don't get a second out of me. You get nothing. Uh, and and it's freaking out, and it's obviously trying to find something that I'll play on. And and so now it's it's amused me because it's just, it's either given up or it has, it's just doesn't know what to do. And so I'm literally getting Japanese language ads for, like, weird 
uh, citrus fruit drinks, which I haven't watched them all. <laughs> but it's kind of like it, it's all in Japanese. It's just this Japanese lady going and 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 pointing at it, and and it's not it's not subtitle. It's just in Japanese. I'm like, go. Yeah, my browsers all sort of block all trackers, and whenever I get onto Pinterest, they're like, we don't know, period undies, special undies for when you're in the period. I'm like. Great. I'm very <laughs> pleased that that is what's happened. It used to be the whole don't be evil, and now they've just gone, good. <laughs> I mean, it, be super evil. It's, yeah, it's, when they, it's, I mean, it's, it's about 10 years ago now, they took it off the wall. Like, don't be evil was written on the, the Google headquarters wall as their mandate. Mm. And then they literally took it off the wall. And when you stop, when you, when you take it off the wall, that's time if you start going, oh, you're you're gonna actively be evil now. Like you can't think of it as anything else, but yeah. you've decided at, to at, be evil. At that evil. point, it's already far too late because someone yes. was like, We're being quite evil, but we don't really need to take it off the wall now. And at some point they went, Look, we are being so evil, we really need to take that down. If people want to find where you're working, that's not not find where you're working. That seems a bit full on. But as if they want to contact you or uh, see your website or anything like that, is there one particularly I should send them to? Uh, and where do your kids go to school? <laughs> Dan, Dan, <laughs> my kids go to school to add my son's kids. And Don't listen to Dan. <laughs> so I go. Can in you class. can you do take a picture of your key and Stop send it, it to? <laughs> <laughs> I got a neighbor using a hammer drill. It's the thing. He stopped again. He's in oh, like, okay. intermittent. It's like a it's like a real aggressive woodpecker is Wood- hanging out. <laughs> it's the laughing that puts you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Alright. Look, the card will be gold. Shut up there. No, no, I liked it. I liked it. It's a deep pull. It was just um, there was a lot more processing of nostalgia <laughs> than there was processing of the joke itself. <laughs> You know Dogecoin? Yes, I noticed that it's gone to the moon. The first it's gone up, Doge yeah. on the moon or something. First, yeah, it's all going up. There's now a fight about what to call it because it's D-O-G-E. It's a it's a joke bit currency. It's a joke. It was designed it as a real joke. Money. Uh, well, no, design, the guy who designed it designed it totally as a joke. He's an Australian, yeah. and he designed it as a joke, and then he got out. Like he never, He's not made a cent on it because he was like, oh, this is a joke, I'm out. And people ke- kept existing. He was like, oh, God. Like He wishes he hadn't, actually, because he's saying it's because he likes bit currencies, and now there's a joke bit currency. And now he's like, oh, but this is getting rid of the thing that I really wanted to promote. He made it as a joke, and the, jo- the meme is a doge, but people say, well, that's actually just a weird pronunciation in a meme. It's actually doge coins, and now there's an argument about calling it a doge coin or doge coin because it'd be silly to call it a doge coin because that's a joke. We have to call it a very sensible doge coin. I'm like, no, no, you, no, you're done. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting new levels of hate that I didn't think my body could process. <laughs> I guess I'm growing as a person. Yep. It's the it's the total total idiots version of GIF GIF, and even that was total idiots. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Yep. It's obviously yep. GIF. It's obviously GIF. <laughs> I just I hate that I I spent like a decade working with and making GIF images, only to have a bunch of friggin' millennials come along and say, oh no. <laughs> No, it's not the way that the guy who invented it or people have been saying it for a decade. But the guy who invented it calls them GIFs. 
He he yeah, actually he, he he's a GIF guy, but as I always love the argument to that. I mean, we shouldn't get on that path, but uh, I love the argument because just because you invented something doesn't mean you get to name it. Culture gets to name it, and we just said it's GIF, and I'm like, but I'm part of the culture, and I say GIF. So why is your part of the culture the correct? Because we've decided. Oh, hang on a minute. All right, so it's not the culture that decides. You decide it. Understood. <laughs> and most of the time, I hear it GIF and GIF. To be honest, and and most of the time, ninety percent of people who are sensible well rational and centered emotionally human beings don't make a f-ing thing of it idiots is, come out of the goddamn wookwood does sit in that group i i don't know what you mean or and i I'm guess not going- me i guess me i guess i'm i'm the problem too aren't i but at least oh. i'm right <laughs>